Welcome to season number six of the Get Your Money Right podcast, the podcast where not only do we want you to get your money, we want you to get your money right. This show is designed specifically for ambitious moms, dads, husbands, and wives to help you get money out of the way so you can live life on your own terms. And if you're finally ready to transform the way you do money, head over and grab one of our free resources at yourmoneyright.com. Again, that's yourmoneyright.com. What's the good news, people? Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Get Your Money Right podcast, the podcast where we talk about money like it's everybody's business. And I truly believe if we're not good with money, it's because we don't talk about money. And this show is designed to change just that. I'm your host, the Money Misfit, Jamar Dupas. This is episode number 83. And today we continue on with our Black History Month, celebrating that here in this month of February 2018. Today is a special treat. Today, you're going to get an interview uh, from a gentleman that I respect and admire, and I've listened to many of his lectures, I've read his books, and I'll put links to all this stuff uh, in the show notes, of course, you can find at yourmoneyright.com forward slash 83, but I just want to jump right into this because it's one of those things where I just want you to listen, pay attention, uh, maybe some of the things that you used to believe will be challenged. This is an interview by Dr. Claude Anderson. He's the author of the book Powernomics, also Black Labor, White Wealth. Uh, He also just had another book he just released here. It's called A Black History Reader. This is one of the uh, gentlemen that I believe, I mean, I've heard, I've learned so much about black history from him uh, in so many ways. Now, some people, he's going to rub you a little bit wrong, right? Uh, Because he talks about black people, black empowerment, how black people should help themselves. And a lot of people don't like the way that sounds, right? He's also going to talk about why black people are disadvantaged, not only, you know, from slavery, but to this day. He he covers so many topics from black people being the, the first people here to being mistreated by the Indians, being the only uh, group of people who are non-immigrants, uh, the being people who have not gotten free labor like other immigrant groups. He's talked about reparations. Uh, he's talked about a lot of things and more importantly, he talks about solutions. And if you know me, if you listen to the show, you know how I feel about economics and how economics is the is one of those critical solutions, one of those critical areas of life that if you don't if you don't get that right, if you don't get your money right, you are running full speed on a treadmill forever. <laughs> right. And of course, he believes in that. Even in his book, Powernomics, he gives a, a five level, a five step kind of process on what you should do as an individual and as a group of people practicing things like group ep- economics and getting into politics and owning an industry and things like that all the way up the food chain, which he talks about here in this interview, too. So I'm gonna get on out the way and let you listen to this amazing interview with Dr. Claude Anderson and on this show, he's on the Rock Newman show. And I'll also put a link uh, to the video of the show as well. But this is just a recording, the MP3 recording of that. Uh, so I hope you enjoy. I'll talk to you next week. Welcome to the Rock Newman show from the campus of historic Howard University, located in the nation's capital. I'm Rock Newman, 
and it is my desire to inspire you with personal stories of extraordinary achievement. My next guest, Dr. Claude Anderson, has written numerous books and produced several videos to help black folks move up from the bottom of the economic ladder. And he's not shy about saying how far we still have to go. You have not moved one iota in acquiring the most significant and the most important thing in our society. It is not civil rights. It is not integration that's going to give you equality and equal opportunity. It is what you own and control that makes a difference in your society. If you own and control nothing, you'll get nothing. There is no equal opportunity without having the equal amount of resources and power and wealth to be able to carry it out. Dr. Anderson, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Thank you very much, Rock, for inviting me to be on your show. I look forward to being on your show because it, I can't think of a better person to be with, particularly one who used to train boxers. <laughs> well, I'll make sure I leave all those skills <laughs> underneath the table as we talk here today. Um, Dr. Anderson, I would like to start this discussion and try to frame it for those who know you and for those who viewers who may not know you. Oftentimes when proponents of black equality and liberation express strong views, they may be telling a strong and accurate truth, but they get criticized, you get criticized for talking that black stuff and the sense that when you talk about black empowerment, you are in some way discriminating against white people or others. How do you address that? Well, very simply, uh, Rock, first of all, let them know that every group on this earth understands that you're in a team relationship. Racism is a team sport. It came into existence as a team. You play as a team or you lose by default. And only with black folk do people get upset when black folks start talking about coming together and uniting and working together and cooperating together, buying from each other and supporting each other. You know why? For a simple reason that everybody understands when you come together and unify, that signifies strength. And right now, everybody right now is pimping and hustling black folk. They've been pimping and hustling black folk for four or five hundred years. We spend approximately 97% to 98% of all our money outside of our own community, as an example. And we don't practice group economics. We don't practice group politics. All that makes it, when we spend 98% of all our money outside of our community, what that does, it makes the other groups enriched. They now are living off of two incomes. They live off of 100% of their money and 98% of our money. And what are we left with is 2%, where everybody else is living off of 100 and 98% of everything. We live off of 2%, which makes it impossible. And so when you start talking about unifying black folk, that's a threat. They're saying, you're going to cut off your money from us? You're going, to, you're going to cut off, we, we're living off of two incomes. You're going to reduce us down to one income? That's a threat to them. Also, it's a threat when you start talking about unifying blacks and looking out for your own people. That means political possibility of uniting as a political force in this country, which nobody wants to see. That's a threat because all the rest of the people in society are living privileged lifestyles based on what they came in here and got with, as immigrants. Black folk have never had those, those, those lifestyles. So, yes, it's a threat to them. You have uh, forcefully suggested that that is by design, that oh. where black folks are in America today, and to some extent throughout the diaspora, mm -hmm. let's talk about America today, is clearly by design. 
how do you defend those who simply say, look, we come here, you're here, and in America, there is the pursuit of happiness, <laughs> life, and liberty. So you, sir, are dwelling on the negative and dwelling in an area of impossibility as opposed to possibility. Well, you your first statement was right on, on point. First of all, it was by design. Your Constitution itself boxed black folk in. We've been boxed in by the United States Constitution because the, the original Constitution spelled out specifically what, how black folk would be treated in this country. You just mentioned something about we come here look, search, searching for life, liberty, and pursuit of, of, of happiness. That was not what it was talking about originally in the Constitution. The originally, when Jefferson and Madison wrote the Const U.S. Constitution, they were talking about life, liberty, and pursuit of property. Because in the Constitution, black folk were defined as property. Three-fifths of a human being uh, equal to, to a uh, field animal, and you were treated as property. There's nothing in the Constitution that addressed the issues for black folk. We are locked in box into the Constitution. And until we go back and address that issue, black folk can never get out of it. And you can't get out of it secondarily, out of this box, because the United States Supreme Court put the lock on the box. The United States Supreme Court right now says, let's go back to the original intent of the Constitution, which says black folk should be three-fifths of a human being, property, and equal to a field animal. That's throughout the Constitution. It's never changed. And the United States Supreme Court then, in the Madison and Balfour decision in 1803, says that we're going to make sure that we abide by that. And then later on in, eight, in 1857, in the Dred Scott decision, says black folk have no rights that white folks are bound to respect. The Constitution have you locked in box, and the United States Supreme Court can make sure you never get out of that box. That is the most racist organization in America. 57 of the first people appointed to the United States Supreme Court were slave owners. And subsequently, most of them have been racist. So you're not going to get out of the box unless you go back and address these issues structurally on behalf of black folk. I like to think that I'm a relatively aware and conscientious individual. I kind of have to be trying to do what I do. <clears throat> but I read, I've read a couple of your highly illuminating, informative books. This one here is Black Labor, White Wealth, The Search for Power and Economic Justice. And you have an appendix in this book that sort of blew my mind uh, as I was reading down it. And that was, it's titled Boundary Safeguards and Restrictions in Southern States. And you, you mentioned many things like in 1619, the Maryland segregation policy, which we're right here on the doorstep of Maryland, recommended that blacks be socially included and so many other things uh, in, in this particular appendix here. But when I got down to the year 1775, there was something called the Virginia Runaway Law that allowed the sale or execution of slaves attempting to flee slavery. And I thought that I would bring this up in this discussion because oftentimes there are people who say, oh my God, why are you still talking about slavery? And I think that in 2015, there is, for the most part, a wholesale lack of appreciation for the impact that slavery for the hundreds of years that it was practiced has on today's world. Right. And see, black folk are still 
under the impact of, of 360 years of slavery and another 100 years of uh, Jim Crow semi-slavery. I didn't hear the first part you said. That they are still being burdened. They're overburdened by slavery because no one has addressed the negative impact of slavery on black folk. It's never been addressed because what was the purpose of slavery? The purpose of slavery was to systematically socially engineer black folk into the lowest level of a real-life monopoly game that was based on wealth, <coughs> power, and control, what you own and control. And slavery itself then maldistributed almost 100% of all this nation's wealth, power, resource, privileges, and controls of all levels of government into the hands of the dominant white society. And black folk don't have, they don't have enough resources to be, able to, com to be a competitive group. When black folk came out of slavery, let's say before they even went into slavery, uh, they owned and controlled nothing. When they came out in the 1860s, a few blacks, about 250,000 black folk, had successfully acquired one half of 1% of this nation's wealth. And that was in 1860, Rock. Here you are 150 years later, black folk still own and control one half of 1% of this nation's wealth. And it's wealth that controls what you get, what your opportunity is going to be. And uh, that, w that one half of 1%, what does it equate to today? That means that, that means that the typical white person right now has 3,500 times more wealth than black folk. And they tell black folk to go out and compete. Compete with what? What are they going to compete with? They don't own or control anything. They only still only control one half of 1% of anything that's that, uh, value in our society. While they are being burdened down with six to seven times of their fair share of everything that's negative that all the social pathology is being inflicted on them. They are the ones that are bearing the burdens of low-income housing, poverty, food stamps, welfare, dysfunctional families, no businesses, no opportunities, failing school systems. They are the ones that are being negatively impacted. Nobody has ever addressed the real issues. The civil rights movement didn't address the issues. They started talking about social integration. Social integration was not the problem with black folk, and they, even the concept of civil rights. They twisted and corrupted that concept. Civil rights was initially talking about what you're going to do for black folk in the country when it came out in 1865 and 1866 in this first civil rights laws. <coughs> and what those civil rights laws were trying to address was correct the Dred Scott decision of 1857. And what I, what I mean by that, that black folk had no rights and they could own and control nothing. And so when you had, in here in Washington, D.C., you had some congressmen called radical Republicans like uh, Congressman Benjamin Thaddeus and Charles something and the rest of them, they said this, that the only things that black people can ever be in America, they're either going to be free or they're going to be slaves. Minimally, to be free, they must have 40 acres, a mule, and $100. Now, immediately, uh, Andrew Johnson, who replaced uh, Lincoln when he got assassinated, he vetoed it. Yeah. And, and, and after he vetoed it, when the conservatives took over uh, uh, the, uh, the control of black folk, the northerners walked away from it, left them, abandoned them. They, black folk were forced into Jim Crow segregation and peonage. And they corrupted the whole concept of civil rights and made it a, a civil issue for everybody. Nobody's ever enslaved the gays, the midgets, the humpbacks, women, uh, uh, Asians, Arabs, Hispanic and American Indians. They enslaved black folk. That's why it's critically important, to go back to one of your earlier questions, for people to understand, when you start talking about issues, about rights, the Dred Scott decision said, the black man has no rights. It didn't say the Asian man, the Arab man, the Mexican man, the Indian man. It says the black man. So how, what's happened now is that the whole concept of civil rights and social integration, all this has been mal-distributed and it's been corrupted into what we call fabricated classes. They're getting all the benefits that black folks should be getting today. All these, and it's intentionally and being designed to make sure everything is moved away from black folk and the lock and the box stays on black folks so they never get out of it. There are those that would challenge you to say that you discuss about civil rights because uh, it almost sounds as if you're saying 
that the struggle of the civil rights movement didn't yield fruit. And one thing that those who challenge you, uh, Lord knows, as we look at, uh, you know, <laughs> the different people who have addressed some of the things that you've said, is that, for example, the civil rights movement in itself is in large part for Barack Obama sitting at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue today. Uh, do you discount the importance of him sitting, or, or is it as important as proponents would say it is that he sits there in the White House? Oh yeah, it's most definitely important in a social context and in a symbolic concept. Very important because, and unfortunately, that's what black folk have been fed for 150 years is symbolic mm -hmm. uh, achievements, symbolic success. Well, you got, you got a black president, you got, you got Martin Luther King Boulevard, you got Rosa Parks Boulevard, but you didn't touch the structural issue. You did not go back and redistribute some of the resources back into the hands of black folks so they can be a competitive group and a self-sufficient independent group in America. I mean, there's that, what, 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 what are the benefits, uh, direct benefits, do black get from having uh, in terms of rectifying the structural problems by having Obama in the White House, by having, uh, uh, we got four or five black billionaires like Oprah, Tiger Woods, how does that translate over to black people? Mm -hmm. If Oprah and, and, and Tiger Woods lost all their money tomorrow, how does that disadvantage black folk? It doesn't hurt black folk one way or the other. Mm -hmm. But there's no connection between, between Oprah and Tiger Woods having, being billionaires mm -hmm. and, and helping all these poor black folk when 38% of all the black people in America are in the poverty level. Having Obama in the White House, how does that translate to benefits for black folk? You write down on a piece of paper, on one side of paper, all the symbolic issues, then write down how black folk are going to get, have been benefited. Write down right now what direct, specific, sole benefits have gone to black folk by putting Obama in the White House. But, and so that's you, important. You, you, you mentioned the word redistribute the wealth. Right. And we have a clip I think we are shown, we have here about you speaking to the issue and on the issue of reparations. Mm -hmm. Because to some extent, when you say redistribute the wealth, that I think incorporates some form of um, reparations. Some form of reparations. So we're gonna show that clip and we'll discuss it. You're gonna have all kind of black folk in this country gonna be opposed to reparation for black, for, for, for you. They're gonna be jumping out. <laughs> they're gonna be jumping out. Of, they're gonna be jumping out of the woodwork. They're gonna be jumping out of the woodwork because they're scared to death. They're just as scared now as they were in 1860. They're gonna say we don't have anything, and, and but when we ask for something, they they'll take away what we got, and we don't have anything, but they'll take nothing away from us. And so you're gonna have that group that's always scared, and they're always gonna say it's better for us to have nothing than you try to get something, because that way they'll take us back to nothing, which is where we are already. <laughs> John, John Conyers, um, from, from his perch there at Capitol Hill, mm -hmm. on Capitol Hill, uh, started a long time ago, uh, maybe as forcefully as anyone within the political structure talking about bills for reparation and a need for reparation. And people yawn and almost say, you know, you know go away, go away, little boy, with, mm -hmm. that, with that noise. Mm -hmm. So I want to talk here today about reparations when you say that blacks deserve deserve mm -hmm. reparations one tell me what you mean by that and take your time and give us to the extent that you can a blueprint of 
what reparations would look like if Dr. Anderson were a part of the architecture of that, <laughs> of that structure? I would be delighted to. See, well, first, let's start with the basic premise, is that black folk are exceptional people. They're exceptional people. And they, just, and they have some exceptionality in this country that everybody overlooks. Black folk have not been treated like all the other people coming to this country. Black folk have been disrespected and, di and disenfranchised in everything and excluded out of everything. Now let's talk about it in the context of reparations. See, all the immigrants came in this country. They came here looking for some form of benefits. The entire American dream is structured on coming to America to get two things, free land and free labor. That's the, that's the, nascent, that's the basis of the American dream. And we have an unending influx of immigrants in this country going all the way back to 1790 with the first immigration and naturalization law, <coughs> which set up a ranking order. It set up a ranking order in, in, in skin color running from white, yellow, brown, black, from the highest to the lowest in terms of color, of skin color. And, they would, and that was the immigration law that was set up based on that. Every immigrant that came to this country was entitled to benefits, to get unearned benefits in terms of the American dream. Everybody talks about the American dream, but nobody ever defines it for you. It's, and, they, and every nation was, was, was alerted to the fact that America was now open for immigrants to come in. And every immigrant came to this country through the homesteading and through head rights. They could get free land to, in whatever quantities they want they could claim. When Thomas Jefferson came, Thomas Jefferson got, he had, got over 100,000 free acres of land. Uh, um, uh, Thomas Jefferson and, uh, and, uh, and Washington, they all got over 100,000. Patrick Henry got over 65,000 acres of free land. They got free land. That, and when, when the big land rush came after, uh, after, after the end of the Civil War, they, and, and, and we had 26 million Europeans poured in this country, then they, and they opened up the Oklahoma Territory. White immigrants picked up over 2 million acres of free land in 24 hours. They didn't pay for it. Now that land that was passed, has been passed on, let's use that, all that land, all the resources, the timber, the gold, the silver, the chrome, the balsite, has multiplied in value and doubled in value to triple in value every 20 years and has been passed on through inheritance from one white generation to the next. Mm -hmm. So consequently, they have control over the land, the resource, and everything has been passed on from generation to generation and shutting black folk out. That's why the average white person now has $3,500 uh, wealth compared to black folks at 1.5%. Okay, let me ask you, because you talk about this land, uh -huh. this land that was originally inhabited. Uh -huh. <laughs> Columbus didn't, 1492. Didn't find it, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Okay, um, address, if you would, the role that the U.S. government, see, this wasn't willy-nilly cowboys, you know, running wild. This was a U.S. government and its policies that ultimately bastardized, took away from, uh, stole from the Native Americans, mm -hmm. made treaties that ultimately were broken, if you want to say willy-nilly, that's where willy-nilly came in. So if you would address that for a moment. Well, yes, and see, it started with one of the first treaties was, was the New York Treaty about, about 1516 that came in. That was one of the first treaties. But in every one of those treaties that they set up with the Indians, they put an inclusion in there saying this, that if you were to cooperate with us and be able to help us maintain the slavery system we set up in this country, you know, and we will reward you and compensate you. We'll give you, we'll give you clothing, we'll give <coughs> you food, we'll give you weapons, you know, and we'll, and, we'll, and we'll even call you civilized if you help us maintain slavery. Every treaty contained a clause to help Indians to s shut down black folk. 
slavery could never have existed in this country and been maintained without the full participation of the American tribes. That's why they started calling them civilized rock, because they began to say, you quit hunting in the woods and running wild and, and get yourself some land and get yourself some slaves. So, so Indians became slave hunters, slave traders, and, uh, and, 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 and in the final analysis, all civilized tribes, the Choctaw, Chickasaw, Cherokee, and Seminole Indians, they all fought with the South to maintain slavery. And so therefore, and, and they got benefits from it. And that led to going back to the earlier question you asked me about, about reparations. And, and even after the Civil War ended, the Choctaw and Chickasaw were still holding about 12 or 15,000 slaves even after the Civil War ended. The United States government sent in troops saying, you got to get rid of this slavery. And, and let, set black folk free. And they set up what's called the 1866 Indian Treaties with these five civilized tribes, which says that black people in this country must not only turn them loose, they must get benefits. They must get forms of reparations. Going back to your earlier question, you must, you must first of all, set them free. Two, you must give them an, an option. And this is for all black freedmen and all blacks who lived in the Indian territory and all black Indians. You must set them free, allow them to have membership in the tribe, you must give them, uh, make them, uh, let them have access to all the resources on a reservation. You must let them also be tax exempt. You must let them have free education. You must also let them be able to uh, uh, give them $150 uh, in cash. You must give them 160 acres of land. And in present day times, those black Indians under the 1866 treaties should be getting, they could also hold gambling casinos. Now this country has, has never carried out the full mandates, but yet we are still honoring it for Indians. Right now, all the benefits that Indians are getting in this country are getting it from the 1866 Indian Treaty because they took up arms against the United States in, 18, in the Civil War. They killed off, wiped out all previous treaties. Now, every year you, in, in the White House, we get about 567 white Indian chiefs, which in history they call $5 Indians because 90% of the people call themselves Indians nowadays are not, are not really Indians. Those are whites passing as Indians because they paid $5 to the Dawes Commission to get their name on the Dawes Roll so they can get all these advantages. Mm -hmm. But every year they get invited to the White House. And <coughs> every year they got an approximately $3.5 billion every year, even that Obama's been in office. They got money into the Federal Indian Bureau. Now see, if you were to talk about reparations, black folks have been getting all this money all these years too. But they got shut out because the Indians in 1938, they sent, to, they sent a letter to the, to the Department of Bureau of Indian Affairs saying, how do we shut black folk down to make sure they never get any reparations? And that, that, that letter floated around in, in, the, in the federal government from about 1938 to about 1941. Then it went to the Secretary for the Department of Interior. And the Department of Interior looked and says, aha, said, how do I come up with a scheme to shut down blacks so they get no reparations in this country? He said, what you do, you Indians come up with a new concept called a quantum blood law which says that black folk are not entitled to any of the benefits of the 1866 treaty yeah. in terms of reparations yeah. unless they can prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that they got one quarter Indian blood in them. Yeah. And we make Indian blood sacred like, like Jesus Christ's blood. And therefore they've been shutting blacks out all these years. That's why they didn't get any reparations. To go back to your earlier point. And the last point on reparations, you asked me earlier about a blueprint. This country's always given reparations to all groups except black folk, even though black folk were the ones who built the country. They built the bridges, they picked the cotton, they built the highways, they built the government buildings. They were the backbone of this nation. But now, so in, in, the, in the Marshall Plan, we gave billions of dollars to, uh, to, to, the, to, the, to Germans after World War II. We got under, under what's called a point uh, four program. We, we gave reparations to, to Japan, Japan, Japanese. We gave reparations to American Indians. We gave reparations to everybody but black folk. Yet black folk are locked into the bottom of a vertical order and a descending order of wealth, owning, and poverty, I mean, and, and control of resources, and nobody wants to address the issue. As you articulate 
your position on reparations, redistribution of wealth. Um, again, those looking in, the pundits, if you will, might say, well, are you, you know, a, a, a Bernie Sanders acolyte? Are you socialist? Uh, are you, are you, do, you, are, do you propose practicing socialism when you start talking about redistributing the wealth? My question for you is, what do you think it is that has, prevent, has prevented a groundswell behind something that seems as if is such a logical, practical, and fair idea. Not revolutionary, not radical. When you look at the facts and you look at the history, then it would seem that most fair-minded people mm -hmm might consider this something that they could get behind, put their shoulder to the wheel on. Why do you think there just hasn't been the groundswell even amongst black folks? Most black people don't talk about reparations. Well, it's, yeah, because, because simply a lot of them don't want to be identified with anything as black. Because right now, see, in this nation, everything that, that everybody dreams of is identified with and associated with white skin. That means privilege, wealth, power, income, and privileges associated with white skin. Nobody, nobody's white mind will identify with anything black that's negative. If black folk are carrying six to seven times their fair share of everything is bad, why would anybody want to identify with blackness when they can identify with whiteness and get all these advantages? Now, in terms of what they should be doing for that, black folk, for instance, right now, these young black folk that need leadership <coughs> in these communities, like this thing about Black Lives Matter, they're floundering around because they don't have any black leadership out there. Now, black leaders will say, well, what can we do to help these blacks, give them some leadership, and at the same time give them some mild form of reparation that's not violent, not, not committing themselves to violence, and then to kind of overthrow a revolutionary uh, activities. They should go in all these urban areas. You got 70% you, of all the black people in America live in and around 10 large metropolitan areas. Yeah. Why don't you go in and reindustrialize re those areas and build industries in there? But what this country well, should... What does that mean? That means that back in 1960s, when you started the integration process, mm -hmm. see, these, these urban areas didn't deteriorate because of black folk being there. They deteriorated because at that point in time, to avoid inter integration, the power structure in this country used the, the 1952 Highway Act to, to build expressways out of these urban areas and to, to build what we call suburbs. Suburbs didn't exist. And once they built those suburbs, they then made a commitment to relocate and, re and, and re all the resources out of those cities to abandon those cities on what we call a burnt field process. Which means let's, let's destroy it uh, and, and, and let the cities deteriorate. They moved to the suburbs. They moved out the, the industries, the businesses, the wealth, the power, the banks, everything moved to the suburbs. And they abandoned those cities. Though that's why those cities deteriorated. You should do just the reverse thing now. Go around and take those big cities like Detroit, Gary, Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, where you have heavy concentration of blacks, and you do it, and you do it an industrialization program. What that means, you start awarding incentives. You set, up re you set up redevelopment banks in those cities where now the government puts special funds into their revolving loan funds, like at about a 2% interest rate that's revolving and subordinatable to regular loans where blacks in those cities can start building their own businesses and rebuilding their own communities rather than socially integrating. Stay where you are and build your own communities. Mm -hmm. And then those communities started building <coughs> industries and factories where you can create jobs, an income base, a tax base, wealth base, an employment base, and begin to build functional schools in those communities. Mm -hmm. And uh, you set up these development banks and the government should put the money into it. Uh, secondly, you should go... Let me, let me stop you there. And Joe Sixpack, uh, driving into work, 
uh-huh. at one of the factories in Detroit from from, from the suburbs Suburb. where, where he still lives. Uh-huh. Uh, Joe Sixpack, the white guy. Yeah. <laughs> He's going to say, well, wait a minute. My tax dollars, in order to do what you're talking about and redistribute some of this wealth, mm-hmm. my tax dollars, my hard-earned tax dollars, mm-hmm. are going to have to be touched. And I'm not looking to make that happen. Well, that's good. It should be touched. You know why? He came here. His ancestors came here to get free handouts. That's why they came here. No immigrant cross spent three months crossing perilous oceans to get to the United States looking for happiness. They came here to get handouts, to get free benefits. Mm-hmm. See, see, understand this, Rock, and, and, and I want your audience to understand it too. 99% of all the black people in America are the direct descendants of slaves, which means they were here before 99% of all the other people arrived. All these people are coming to this country boasting about my family came from, from Germany. My parents came from Ireland. My parents came from, from, from Greece or Italy. They came here for a specific reason, to get benefits. They get unearned benefits, to profit and enjoy the fruits of black folks' labor and the in, Indian land. They, they've already gotten theirs. And now, now what they're saying is that now that we've gotten everything, we've got control of it, we got it free and passed it from generation to next generation, we're not going to let you have anything. And see, that's grossly unfair and it's immoral. And the worst thing that our society can, is doing, and they should cease in doing it, is they start equating black folk to all these fabricated groups like minorities and poor folk and people of color and Asians and Hispanics coming into the country. These people coming across this, coming to this country today get unearned benefits to enjoy the fruits of black folks' labor. Nobody shut them down. The Chinese started pouring into the California after the Civil War to get benefits. And the Mexicans, there were no, in, in the Civil War, you had about 6,000 Hispanics in the United States. And now you got about almost 50-something million. They came in looking for benefits. And I heard Jesse I heard Jesse Jackson say one day that, you know, all other groups came here seeking a thrill. Th- that's right. They came, and they, black folks came here, obviously, against, that's right. their, against their will. See, as a black folk are the only non-immigrants. Our, our country is structured on immigrant rights to give them benefits. Mm-hmm. Black folk are the only non-immigrants in this country. I know people always say, well, it, Indians are immigrants. Indians, Indians were the original people. No, they were not. The original people in this country were black folk. The Folsom people that came in this country about 16,000 years ago. The so-called American Indians or Asians that came across the Bourbon Straits about 6,000 years ago. So what I'm saying is that everybody comes to this country to get benefits except black folk. Nobody wants to stick up for and fight for black folks. You cannot solve the racial problem in this country unless you create a circumstance where black folk can acquire some wealth, power, decent communities, functional schools, and, and, and be able to take care of their own people and be self-supportive and competitive and independent. Malcolm X was quoted as saying, and I don't know if my quote will be exact, but something to the effect of to allow your oppressor to educate your children is to be a fool. Talk to me about in all of your study and and, and scholarship and research, the role that education has played in depriving enhancing and or depriving the pursuit of happiness of black individuals. Oh, that's, that's a good one. That's a good one. See, and uh, the education system, as we presently know it, Rock, came into existence. It didn't, it didn't even exist until after slavery. The present system came into existence, and one of the primary reasons it came into existence was to educate <clears throat> the offsprings of slaves, <clears throat> to be able to give them an educational opportunity. Mm-hmm. And they structured it so that basically that it would be, even though it would be a manual education, mm-hmm. you know, manual art training, but it, but it did come into existence. 
and to a large degree, black folk contributed to the development of those school systems. They worked hard to build those schools, selling flowers, pies, cooks, and cakes, and building with their own hand. And that was like in 1866. In 1866, keep in mind that up until that point, we had laws in this country that forbade the educating of a black person. Yeah. You get caught teaching a black person to read and write would cost you $100 and 39 lashes with a whip mm -hmm. to be caught teaching a black person to, re to read and write. Mm -hmm. we, black folk were suffering from imposed ignorance. They were, they were, mm -hmm. they were being mandated to mm -hmm. be ignorant. Mm -hmm. And uh, if they weren't physically or in, in, in fact ignorant, they had to act and pretend they were dumb. They had to dumb down. Right. But between 1866 and let's say 1896, in that 30 year period, even though 96% of the black folk could not read and write in 1866, in a 30-year time period, those black folk almost by themselves educated, reduced their illiteracy rate in this country from 96% down to about 44%. Mm -hmm. they, that nobody has ever done that in the history of this world. No group that had been enslaved for three or 400 years yeah. could in 30-year time period set a record for educational achievement. Now, and, and they did it. So but then, then by, let's see about, let's jump and see, show how that worked though. By 1950, a black person with an education was still not getting the benefits of having an education. Education usually has benefits that follows it once on based on the achievement levels of a, of a group of people. Mm -hmm. It never, achievement, benefits never, never followed black folk in education. So in 1950, the average black person with a college education could not earn as much as a white high school dropout because they were not getting the benefits of having an education. And what you have to do nowadays is go back in those, when I say you go back in these urban areas where all these black folk are, you got to rewrite the curriculum. You cannot have a curriculum that is designed for to educate white children and all these other groups who've not been oppressed, denied, and, 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 and rendered dysfunctional. You cannot use the same curriculum on them. You need to set, shut down all these schools in these urban areas. Shut them down, close them down, and say, now we're gonna rewrite the curriculum based on the needs of black children. Okay, you say shut them down, close them down. Right. And any administrator, Kaya Henderson, who's superintendent of school, chancellor of schools here, and anybody else would say, that's so impractical. That would destroy our children. No, I mean, that wouldn't. Now, I don't know about Henderson. But I, I was over education for the state of Florida. I'm the only one, only black person in America that was over the entire education system for seven to eight years for the whole state of Florida. Mm. I was over everything from the first grade of the nursery school all the way to the universities mm. in both the public sector and the private sector. You gotta be realistic. Black kids need a special kind of education. We are the only people on this earth that for instance have never enjoyed the fruits of an industrial revolution. Mm. Everybody's done it. We have never had those kind of values, no, those kind of experiences. Mm. You gotta go in there and say, now what are the things that black children need? They need things that are different from the white child. They come to school with different emotional, physical, and financial baggage than the regular kids do. Mm. You gotta modify your curriculum based on the needs of black folk in this country. As an example, suppose right now I was to tell you that we all now, that the world's coming to the end, we gotta go to the moon. What you should do is say now, how does that impact your school and your curriculum? You have to say, we need to go into our schools and shut down our curriculum and begin to teach our kids how to survive on the moon. What kind of expertise and training would they need? We're gonna need pilots, we're gonna need astronauts, we need chemists, we need biologists, we need uh, people in physics, physical science. You need to rewrite the curriculum so it include all these things that help bring, elevate black folk up so they can be a competitive group along with all the other people. The other kids that are coming, coming to the school system, they come from families and from cultures that have already enculturate certain kind of values, skills, and, 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 and amenities into their lifestyle. We never had that. You gotta bring those black kids up and make schools worthwhile. Right now, most of the schools like in Detroit, Michigan, they are dysfunctional. Half the black kids that graduate from high school can't read and write. 
Why do you keep passing these kids through school talking about, well, we ain't going to shut the schools out. Shut them down re and restructure them. Now, that's what I recommended. But here's what's <coughs> happening in Florida. When I, when in Florida, doing the integration, here comes whites now and say, well, Dr. Anderson, what we're going to do with these schools, let's, uh, we're not going to integrate our schools. We, what we're going to do is create charter schools. We're going to shut your schools down. But we're going to create charter schools <coughs> to replace the public schools. We're going to set up segregated academies. We're going to set up religious schools and shut your schools down because we're going to make sure our kids get what white kids need in the South. And say so the same thing. Black kids, black teachers and principals say, we're going to close our schools for a month or whatever time it takes or during the course from June until September. And say, let's rewrite the curriculums and start providing these kids with some education that are qualified to do what? To make sure that they never graduate from school without either a scheme in their head or a skill in their hands. Every black child should be taught economics and basic training and business development from the first grade to the eighth grade. And by the time he gets to the eighth grade, he should learn how to be, he should be stimulated to be able to learn how to create things, to modify things, to produce things. When he gets to high school, he should at least be taught some basic skills, at least two years of skill training, he, like, like it used to be. Why aren't they graduating being plumbers, electricians, tools like, tool and die makers, uh, or uh, sheet metal, woodwork, carpentry? Right now, if you go call Sears out to your home, most of the people coming now doing all, the, doing all that basic work are not black folk. There are immigrants coming into your house doing the work mm. for plumbing and electric work and woodwork and brick land. Look at the construction companies. Blacks used to have that. You got to make sure these black kids do, do not in, in, uh, graduate from high school ill-equipped to compete. Quit sending so many black kids to college. You don't need all them black kids in college. Black kids now graduate with a master's degree working in McDonald's and, and Wendy's stores because they, they master nothing. Yeah. Quit getting black folk master degrees with masters so they can't master anything. Let me ask you about um, people know you. There are videos <laughs> of you with thousands and thousands of people, you know, eyeballs on your videos. I, I didn't know that. That's paying, <laughs> paying, paying attention to what Dr. Anderson has to say, you know, theorizing, um, um, making very strong suggestions, advocating, you know, black empowerment. Um, what didn't come across so much in the public domain was the business <clears throat> businesses that you operate. One, tell us about what you're doing in the world of business and how what you're doing in the world of business gives backbone to the things you're saying. So how are you practicing what you preach? Well, now, because I'm spending most of my time being a speaker going around the country, and most of the resources uh, from those engagements go to the Power Numbers Corporation, mm -hmm. which I don't own. Now, my wife owns that. That's her company, the Power Numbers Corporation. But in the course of my life, uh, before I got, I've been to the highest levels of government. At every level, I run campaigns for presidents, for governors, for mayors, for uh, congressional people. I run, cam I didn't want in the campaigns. I was a campaign manager for them, okay? Mm -hmm. I've, been, I've been in all levels of education from everything from special education to, to elementary schools to university, community college. I've been in the highest level of everything you can think about. And, and I, I heard you talking earlier about the fish business. Yeah. Oh, well, let me get to that one. Mm -hmm. now, now, what I would, now, 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 in terms of business, I have, I, first thing I built, I built a radio station, WWD in Tallahassee, Florida. Okay. I built that. That was one of the first uh, FM stations in the, host, in, the, in the country for black folk. I think it was about the second or third with James Brown and myself. Mm -hmm. I also had owned a radio station in the top of the Superdome in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. I owned radio stations. And I that was what period of time? That was back in the 70s. Okay. Oh. And in the 70s, you also came, you were in the administration of the peanut, peanut farmer from Georgia. <laughs> yeah, from Georgia. What, yeah. what role was that? 
Well, that, that, I, I was a campaign manager in Florida for, for Jimmy Carter. Okay. Jimmy Carter had been in two primaries early in the, in the, in the, in the, uh, in the, in the campaign season, and he had lost in all, both of those campaigns. Mm -hmm. And then he was on the wing. And at that point in time, people like Andy Young, Julian Bunn, and, and some other people in, in high levels of, of his campaign in Atlanta, they called mm -hmm. me and said, Dr. Anderson, the next campaign, the primary will be in Florida. And I organized the blacks in the state of Florida on what's called a state action council mm -hmm. to empower them. And we were very strong then because we were united, played yeah. as a team. We voted as a block mm -hmm. on issues. We moved as a block. We lobbied as a block. Okay. So, so let me, because me, I, I, I did know, I did want to get in that, you know, you were, uh -huh. you know, you were a part of that. Uh, well, he made me, a, he pointed me to be the first assistant secretary in commerce for, as a black secretary. Mm -hmm. I also, I was the only black that got appointed to be a chairman for economic development for eastern and southern governors. Most people don't know that. Mm -hmm. No black has ever been a chairman for governors. Uh, they appointed me over that. Okay. So I, I led, I, plus I had trade missions in third world countries, including Africa, Venezuela, Colombia, and all around the world. Mm -hmm. And back to your business. Uh, we we started to talk about the fish business. Mm -hmm. um, tell us about that. How did you get into that? And 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 uh, well, well, we're heading up trade missions in different countries. The the, uh, the classical seafood industry came to me and said, Doctor Anderson, we're getting killed off. At that time, they set up what's called a Kobe plan, where where we went over in, in the in the China, Kobe, Japan, mm -hmm. and we're trying to figure out how to help some of these third world nations. And we and we encouraged aquaculture to start raising fish in, in those countries. And but those people within a short period of time got very good at it mm -hmm. because they didn't have a labor cost and, and, a, and, a, and a food cost because they, they weren't feeding their fish the appropriate diets mm. that they needed to be mm -hmm. clean and harmonious. And so, and so it was killing off our classical seafood industry. So, that I, so I went and set up several programs to try to help our local seafood industry. I set up what's called a John Island crabbing facility for blacks in John Islands. I set up the uh, Hilton Head Seafood Corp. I started what's called a Midwest Seafood Distribution Program. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I was taking surplus, I had the surplus fishing program. I was taking fish to third world countries, particularly Africa, to give it to them. But then I said, said in my basic principles of powernomics, I said black folks should dominate in business wherever they dominate in, in population or in spending patterns. And since black folk eat three to four times more fish than anyone else in the country at that time, and we spend $9 for every $1 white spend, then blacks should be dominating in seafood production. In other words, from the, from the boat to the throat, they should be controlling the seafood industry. Mm -hmm. So I decided to open up a fish, uh, an aquaculture facility here in, in the Washington, D.C. area. And we, became, we set it up, and uh, we operated for about six or seven years. But the problem was most of my clients were, were Asians. Almost 99 and 99% was, were Asian. No blacks ever got into the vertical integration. Mm -hmm. I wanted blacks to not only learn how to produce, but to retail, wholesale, all the way up. Uh -huh. So, so your business, you, you're sort of manufacturer, almost if you will. I'm a manufacturer. Yeah. Of fish. And, yeah what, and what you were looking to do was to be able to have uh, other blacks to be introduced in that ladder, as you say, wholesalers, Retail. retailers, whatever they yeah. might have been. Right. And that never happened. Never happened. And and, and why? Why? Because I, I'm, I'm not sure. I guess some because they didn't have the money. They didn't, I'm not sure why. But but we just waited for them and waited for them. And I became totally dependent on Asians to buy, the, buy, off, buy all of our product. Mm -hmm. And so Asians began to start taking over. Then they started dominating the seafood industry. Right now they dominate it because they play as a team. Mm -hmm. I was going to say, which seems as if that would be a classic economic example mm -hmm. that even if you are the manufacturer, mm. if those that are practicing group, those that are practicing group mm -hmm. economics mm. can ultimately, if they are continually and majority the ones that purchase <laughs> from you, they ultimately can sort of take your place, can take your position, which speaks to 
ultimately the lack of cohesiveness and working together within the black community. Right. And th that's why I go back to an earlier point I made. If we had gone to these urban areas, for instance, and we and I told you about industrializing these urban areas, you could have set up distributorships and wholesalers in those in those areas. Those people could have gone down and borrowed low interest funds and built uh, wholesalers and, re and, and, and warehousing of seafood. And then all the way up to the retail level where they have a, have a chain of, of, of black restaurants. And, uh, and that's why I talked to like Clarence Otis, who was a uh, head of Red Lobster at that time. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to be able to put blacks in a position where they could buy a lot of these uh, Red Lobster restaurants that get ready to close down. And, uh, and s instead of having Red Lobster restaurants, they could have had Black Lobster restaurants all over the country. Mm -hmm. And uh, but unfortunately, uh, we weren't able to do it because Clarence Otis, and, you know, he, he, he resigned from uh, as the head of, of the Darden restaurant chain. But but black folks should be heavily engaged because they're the major eaters of seafood. You go to any seafood restaurant, a, a, a large, significant number of people are going to be black folk. And, uh, but unfortunately, now Asians are pretty much locked down the seafood industry in this America, in this country now. I was the only one that was out there doing it to any significant degree. And, but, I, but again, I could not set up the distributorship that I wanted in warehousing, wholesaling, and retailing across the country for black folk. Okay. You know, we've spent a lot of time talking about um, what are the maladies, what is the, what is the plight, what, uh, you know, sort of the bad condition of <coughs> blacks being on the lowest rung of the economic ladder. Mm -hmm. For someone who has been addressing these issues for as long as you have, can we talk about the possibility of some solutions? I mean, I, 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 I saw a speech of yours where you, you know, you, you hit the bell. Um, and said that blacks in America are at serious risk of seriously becoming an underclass. Well, now they are official. All, it, as of two thirteen, they are an underclass now, and you've been you've been you've been supplanted and displaced by by what we call fabrication of classes across the country. The emphasis now is is on those fa new fabricated classes. And that came out of the benign elect policy that was put in place by Richard Nixon back in the 19, in 1969, 1970. And benign elect said, said this, the way you shut down the black civil rights movement in this country and the black power movement in this country is to take the focus off of black folk and put it on minority women, children, and immigrants. And, that, and when they did that, it means make black folk become invisible. Don't do not put, in, exclude black from any public policies. And over the last 50 years since the 1960s is now morphed in what they call political correctness. Political correctness means do not address anything pertaining to black folk, do not include black folk in anything. And at best you can do is put them in some very broad, ambiguous category that nobody can, can Classic determine. example of that was the fine line that Obama had to walk, not putting an emphasis, perhaps in a public way, unable to put as much emphasis as maybe someone before him or someone that might come after him that is not black. That's right. He's prohibited from, from, from addressing the issues of his own people. He can't do it. They got him blocked and blocked. He can't address his own people, which would, and, and that creates despair in the black folk because black folk, it, 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 after, after uh, Jim Crow segregation died, they were looking forward to social integration as being the, the, the rainbow, the, the golden goose, you know, the pot of gold. And then they looked for symbolically, then they looked for another symbol, which would be to have a black man in, in, the, in the White House or a black man in the Supreme Court. But all these individuals have been unable to be able to address significantly the issues of black folk. 
what I told you is the maldistribution of wealth and resources and controls of things in the country. Black folk are non-competitive. They can't compete. Right here in, like in, you're in Washington, D.C., in Chocolate City, all these cities are going to be gentrified. All these major urbans that I'm telling you about in these big cities, they're going to be gentrified, and they're gonna be, here's, a, here's a scene that they're going to use six schemes to wipe black folk out. One's going to be called gentrification, which means come in there and dilute black folk down. When I came here to, to Washington, black folk were about 78% of the population. You're down about 40% now. The second thing is privatization. You're going to take all the public resources and put them in the hands of, 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 of the white dominant society. They're going to buy, they got the wealth, the money. They can buy as much as they want. That's why when, when, uh, in 1996, when Clinton lifted the, uh, the Tailcapped Act on, in communication, saying that anybody can own as many radio stations and television yeah. stations that they want based on their money. If you know that whites own and control 99 and 1.5% of all the wealth, why would you say that knowing that black folk can't outcompete them in buying up the media in this country? So out of 12,000 radio stations, and blacks used to have about 100 and something, down to about 70, 80 now. And out of 12,000 uh, in, in cable systems, 5,000, blacks don't own any. In, in daily newspapers, blacks don't own any. In television, blacks might have one out of, out of, out of 5,000. You don't have the wealth to be a competitive people yeah. because nobody wants to address your issue and get back and figure out how do we go back and redevelop this country so that black folk can have decent communities. And in those communities, they can have an economic base. They can have a tax base. They can produce jobs for their own people. So rather than having our schools training black folk to go look for jobs, they should be training black folk how to, prepare, how to, how to create jobs for their own people in their own communities and have with, through functional schools. Now, um, again, having, you know, a good amount of time to look at your books here. <laughs> um, as I had said earlier, we've addressed, uh, spent a good amount of time mm -hmm. talking about the condition mm -hmm. of the patient, of the black patient. Uh, several people who endorsed your book basically endorsed it and in different ways they said the same thing. And I'll read Congressman Clay, a member of Congress, who said, Dr. Anderson methodically outlines and articulates strategies for blacks to become a self-empowered people in America despite the obvious injustice imposed on them throughout much of their history in this country. This was 20 years ago. And in the five minutes that we have left, I'd like to see if we could spend some time talking about where there is hope and what can be done to change this dire situation. And it is dire. It, it is a dire situation. And the first thing we need to do is we're going to have, have to have a new mindset with our people to understand that nobody's going to come rescue black folk. And, that, and quit depending on other people to ally with you. We're the only people that want to go to the bathroom, but want everybody to go to the bathroom with us. <laughs> we know we have, we, we, see, and that's a problem. We, we, have no, we, have, we don't have enough, enough confidence in ourselves to be a competitive people. And so we have, once we get this new mindset, then we have to say there's nothing wrong with having black, we got to build black communities. Rock, it is, it, is, it is impossible in theory and in practice for you to be a competitive group of people in a capitalist society without having either a physical community or a broad sense of a community yeah. that you can identify with your people if you don't live together. Mm -hmm. We don't have, we, we have neither physical communities anymore, neither we have a sense of community. Everybody in every immigrant group coming to this country, within a matter of a, of a few days to a month after they land here, they will build a physical community. They'll have Japan towns, Chinatown, French town, German town, yeah. Greek town, Pole town, hockey town, cork towns, Mexican towns. Something occur occurs to me in line with what you're saying. Um, statistically, we are somewhere 12 percent of the population, mm -hmm. and you say uh, one half of one percent uh -huh. of the wealth. That's right. And if, if 
the black community were able to achieve an equality of wealth to the percentage that it is of the nation, what a different way, what a different conversation we'd be having. It'd be a totally different issue. And they would do that by practicing, once you build that but community. Now this is what I want to hear. Yeah, and when you do that, once you build that community, then you start practicing group economics. Mm -hmm. and, and typically, see, the, the rule of thumb in group economics is this, is that your money should bounce eight to 12 times before it leaves your hands and spin around. Within the group. Right, and so in, in this country right now, Hispanic money typically bounces six to seven times. Mm -hmm. White money bounces eight to 12 times. Mm -hmm. Asian and Arab money bounces 12 to 13 times, I mean 13 to 14 times. Jewish money bounces 18 times. Black money doesn't bounce once. Yeah. And what you mean by that bounce? That, that means that you get a dollar from a job or a business that you are operating and you go spend that money with somebody that looks like you. That's right, you got it. That's what you spend with your own people first. And see, what's happening right now is that everybody else does this but us. And see, right now, you, you, as long as you've been on this earth, you've never seen, for instance, a white person get in his car on a Saturday morning, drive down to a black neighborhood, go into a black store and buy something produced by a black people that's being sold by a black person. They boycott you. Everybody's boycotting black neighborhoods and black products. And, and we, we go to Chinatown, but Chinese don't come to black towns to buy anything. We don't produce anything. We are zero producers, 100% consumers. Nobody's bringing money to our communities. So our money is not bouncing around. But what I recommend the black folk do, to do is that once we build these communities and go back to where we used to be, see, one time black folk had businesses. We had some fine mm -hmm. businesses before mm -hmm. integration. Mm -hmm. Integration destroyed black communities and black businesses. We, we, we used to be able to walk around in any black community. You could find grocery stores, party stores, liquor stores, discount stores, hotels, nightclubs, yeah. buses, cab companies, everything. Yeah. We have nothing now. Yeah. We got to go back and rebuild these communities, then, 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 then start marking your money and say, now I got, I got a dollar bill. I'm gonna put a check mark on this dollar bill. I'm gonna make sure that before this dollar bill leaves a black hand, that it, that leave black, it, it must have at least 12 marks on it. And, that, and once you start doing that, you can start practicing group economics. Because right now, we don't practice that group, not group economics. As soon as a black person gets play, paid rock, he'll run immediately to a suburb or to a non-black owned store and spend his money. But nobody's rushing to spend money with you. So we got a balance of trade deficit. Everybody's coming into our community, setting up, setting up McDonald's and Burger Kings and taking the money out, but nobody's bringing any money in. And we're not going to anybody else's community and bringing any money back to the black community. You got a balance of trade deficit. And that, and, and that is totally destructive for black folk. You're not living off enough money to be able to be a competitive people because you're giving your money away. And, uh, and again, like in Detroit, Michigan, I told Detroit, Detroit is way back that they're, gonna, that they're gonna become impoverished and go into bankruptcy. I said, you got, I said, you got about a, you got about $11 million, a billion dollar worth of annual income in this city, mm -hmm. you know, in terms of tax revenue, uh, and for, for what you put into your food service, your universities, your schools, and running your city, you got $11 million. And right now, but you're going bankrupt because if you're not practicing group economics. Had you circulate that money 10 times in Detroit rather than running to the suburbs, you would have $110 million. Billion. You know, we're just about out of time. Well, let's leave it here that we may both try to practice what Cornell West said and remain prisoners of hope. That's right. Well, that's it. Buddy. Thank you so and much. And thanks a million for inviting me on your show. Absolutely. And invite me back again. I'm, I'm looking for you to come back. Thank you, Ron. MPS. MPS. I said we're talking about